Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Cloak and Dagger podcast. You are listening to your host, Will Davis Coleman, and as ever, I am joined by Patrick Courtney, your other host. Hey, Will, how are you doing? Hey, man, all good, man, all good. Looking forward to getting on to another episode in our Cities series. Mm, uh, yeah. This, uh, this week and next week, we'll be talking about the capital of Japan. Tokyo, or as we will call it for literally, we realized for the next two episodes, that's probably the only time you're going to hear us call it Tokyo because for the majority of its history, it was known as Edo. So get used to hearing Edo and thinking Tokyo. So there's your... uh... (laughs) We both (laughs) pick time periods there. They're they're, they're still a little bit far apart, but yeah, as you say, it's most of the time it's Edo. I think we both picked times where it is the capital or at least the kind of capital. It's sort of I yeah. mean, we'll get into it later but yeah it's kind of its position and its importance in the country uh, evolves over time and it's not quite the capital at least when I'm talking about it <laughs> yeah it is a bit of a complicated one but uh I don't know about you Patrick but I found that this one especially you have to actually because we're so far removed from it culturally and there's a lot you have to sort of contextualize about it because it's such mm. a different place you, you can't just say, oh, you know all that stuff that you, everyone knows about. Yeah, we're yeah, going to just yeah. pretend you know all that and then start. <laughs> so it's it's quite a, you better settle in for this one. I hope you've got a cup of tea, listener. Yeah, when you think of cities, and actually all of the cities, or pretty much all of the cities we've done so far are very westernised. So, you know, I mean, London and New York, absolutely. Alexandria was kind of Greek, which is still a kind of Western world thing. Baghdad was the most different. I was going to say Baghdad isn't particularly West. <laughs> yeah, it's not particularly West, but it's still it's still kind of within our sphere of understanding. Whereas so far East, Japan is just another world from our understanding. So much of what you understand of like medieval cities is based on like London and Paris and stuff like that. Edo is nothing like that, and it's it, it's really interesting the differences, which I think it really is, is, and it really messes you with when you're trying to research it. I mean, I ran into a lot of this. If you uh, if listeners, long time listeners, remember, I did an episode in season two about the ninjas of feudal Japan, which also uh, had me diving into <laughs> Japanese history, and it's kind of complicated to get your head around. I mean, it's fascinating, and it's really it's really interesting to learn about such a different timeline because it really explores the kind of the similarities that all humans go through but then how different life can be depending on really minor seemingly insignificant stuff that can kind of spiral out into entire cultural differences yeah very eloquently put patrick thank you i I admit when i got to the end of the sentence i was quite proud of myself (laughs) yeah i bet you are i'm not even reading from like a note i stole from someone from the internet no i saw you ad living that was brilliant most of the time i say something really impressive i've stolen it from a book or from from an article and i'm just reading it off verbatim but no see we're getting good at this yeah clearly it's starting to rub off um (laughs) So, yeah, no, but I, I agree. I feel like Japan um, has so many similarities, especially medieval feudal Japan with medieval and feudal Europe. But mm. at the same time, it's like it's a bit like um, sort of splitting twins at birth and seeing how one grows up yeah. in one area and one growing up in the other because they're quite similar to especially, I guess, in, I guess because we, we're both English or British. Um, mm. We're from an island nation a bit like just off a massive landmass, just as 100%, Japan is yeah. off a massive landmass. So it's kind of similar in a I think that way, was but... something we mentioned in the Ninja episode as well, that 
it's weird how Britain and Japan are two sides. They're kind. They are very similar, and they are both in very similar positions and have a very similar, <laughs> rather imperial history, which is rather bloody and 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 difficult. And then you know, throughout their more medieval history. It's lots of like civil wars and you know real brutality. Um, oh yeah. Uh, followed up by kind of large periods of peace and more strong kind of ruling classes. Like it's a really interesting history and it's really weird how it is similar to ours. But I guess you know similar geography can lead to similar nations. Which well, is that's the thing. Idea. I think that's the the thing we're sort of pushing towards is that there is a correlation because of the the geography. But anyway. Let's get into this before we always do this. We always have like a really long intro before we actually start. <laughs> we kind of start without meaning to start. Exactly. All right, let's do this. Right, so it's up to me to introduce us to Edo uh, for this two week episodic look into Tokyo's history. Um, once you've listened to this intro, we'll then have Patrick take us away with the first of two stories. So yeah. settle in, listener, and uh, let me take you to Japan and to Edo, which is halfway. Sort of, if you think about Japan, it's it's sort of nestled right in the center uh, on the mm. eastern coast. So looking out to the Pacific, um, that's where that's where it is. So Edo is actually unlike lots of cities that we've looked at before. Um, it's not that old. In fact, I think it might even be the youngest city. Oh, no, hang on. I think New York's the youngest city. New uh, York will be the youngest city. If we're talking about cities as opposed to settlements that were there before, which we have said every time, New York, we said, started with the, the Europeans and Alexandria started with Alexandria. If we're not including the settlement that was there before, then, yeah, yeah I think it's it, it, this is probably second youngest, I imagine. Okay. Well, uh, this is the... Uh, so Edo was a village before it was anything else. And mm. th literally, we know absolutely... When I was looking into this, I couldn't believe this, but there's absolutely no historical record of the city before the late 10th century. Wow. AD. CE, sorry. So, like, that's really late. That's the 900. So I think it was 980 when they first entered the historical record, which is actually really late, considering... Yeah. Um, Japan is such an ancient society. To put mm. that into a little bit of context, um, literally, there had already been 65 emperors of Japan <laughs> by the time that Tokyo, sorry, Edo, comes into the historical record. 65 wow. emperors. I mean, in fairness, before. you know, their emperors, it's just one long line of emperors. It's not like, you know, European or, you know, it's not like Britain, where we constantly have a variety of different leaders. We go from Druidic leaders to a series of different kings to one French king to all sorts of things. You know, they, they have the emperor and his line that kind of extends all the way into mythological times. So it does. That's very true. But I mean, after the first, I think it's the first three are mythological and then you've just got actual historical records. Well, the original so, one's a god, isn't it? I think. I mean, they're all, I think he's they're a all son kind of a god. god. Yeah. Yes, think... yeah. So there's the god, and then the first emperor, I think, is the son of the god, and all of the ones subsequent are all yeah. descendants of the god, including <laughs> the current one. But you know what reminds me of this, actually? Um, at about the same time that Edo comes into the, uh, into the historical record, King Alfred the Great, actually, he was 100 years before. Doesn't matter. But King Alfred the Great... Um, uh, is written about. He has a, a life of himself put together, and in it, he has his genealogy, 
and it goes to kind of like Alfred, son of Serdic, son of Ethelbert, son of thing, and that's all fine. <laughs> and then it goes, <laughs> so it gets back to something like son of Abraham, and then it goes all the way back to son of Adam, and then it's just like Adam. He oh, really? He literally takes it all the way back to Adam. Yeah. <laughs> so he's a descendant, kind of a descendant of God. Because he's Adam. So it's, Adam's Adam's it's, not really God's son. He's just like made. He's just yeah. a lump of clay, isn't he? That, that God makes. <laughs> yeah. we're, te- we're testing our religious <laughs> understanding, but yeah. No, it is. Yeah, I just found it so interesting that actually it's quite interesting that he didn't try and go back to Jesus. That would make far more sense. But he doesn't. Well, he goes back to Adam. Probably harder to do because no one knows where the Garden of Eden was, whereas people know where Jerusalem is. And it's hard to say that he, you know, they know where the Saxons came from. Like, it's hard. It's probably harder for him to, to play that card. And it's only literally. What, than Adam? Well, but Adam I, I, could be millions of. Well, not millions, but, you know, a very <laughs> long time ago. Whereas in King Alfred Day, Jesus was only 900 years old. So That's it still would be. A it'd long be harder. Time. Yeah, I know, but he it it's I reckon it's harder to play that one. People are like, but you're not from like you don't look like you're from Jerusalem. Like it just doesn't make sense. Or maybe okay. he was being modest. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Although yeah, Adam's, pretty, Adam's a Adam. pretty big Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a pretty big ancestor. <laughs> and, but but then aren't we all descendant of Adam? Isn't that the point? Yes. Yes it is. Yeah. In a kind of weird, gross, slightly incestuous way. It is a bit weird, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, back to the actual uh, <laughs> subject of today's <laughs> episode. Um, the reason why Edo was uh, not known about was it was simply just a little fish- fishing village. Um, and prior to it becoming Tokyo, and actually, I guess, Edo as a as a city it, and the capital of Japan, um, Kyoto was the historical capital. And that was where the emperors lived and ruled from. So... It actually was completely irrelevant at the time. And this is mm. what makes actually, it, it's sort of a bit like Baghdad in terms of like, it was founded in order to establish a dynasty. So just like how Al-Mansur established it and then the Abbasid Empire grew from Baghdad, a very similar thing happened with Edo because um, leading up to the end of what was known as the, is it the Sengoku period, Patrick? Yes, the Sengoku right? period. At the end of the Sengoku period, which was basically like the War of the Roses, I'm not going into it. Go back and listen to our episode on the ninjas because there's lots of stuff there on it. Yeah, I, um, I dive into it. It's a it's a particularly bloody point in Japan's history and is is complicated yeah. to explain. Just, just as, if not more complicated than trying to explain the War of the Roses, if for you oh, guys God, yeah. out there who know about that, <laughs> which, um, which which you know is the is the basis for the Game of Thrones books, which are bloody complicated as well. So you, if you've read those, you get an idea of how complicated War of the Roses and therefore how bloody complicated the Sengoku period is. <laughs> exactly. But at the very end of that, um, there's one man standing on top of a hill of bodies, and his name was Tokugawa Ieyasu. Now, he... Bingo. I really, really like Tokugawa Ieyasu, but that's just probably because <laughs> uh, he won. He probably made himself look better than his other his friends. He's so much enemies. the hero of the period. He is the grand winner. All the other uh, kind of like warlords that come out of that, because they lose, they're villains and evil, whereas he's the kind of grand unifier. I mean, they, a few of them get that title, I think, the grand unifier, but he's the actual one who does it, but yeah. really just benefits from all the work the you know bloodier, crazier warlords did ahead of him. Yeah, exactly. So what he does is he um, establishes himself at Edo Castle, where he builds a massive fortification on an older one that was there. 
Um, and the reason he did this was for two reasons. The first was he didn't um, want the shogun to be overshadowed by the emperors of Japan. And so he needed a sort of strategic place, which wasn't in Kyoto, where he mm. could um, dominate when the emperors weren't too close by. And the other reason is that Edo was a port in a massive bay, which meant that if he needed to put down an insurrection, either north or south of his power base, he mm. could hop on the ships and move very quickly if necessary and get uh. down and destroy whoever's coming up. Well, that's the theory anyway. Mm. Um, the last thing to say before I pass over to Patrick is that the bay itself um, is a huge bay. It was actually known as Uchi Umi, which it means the inner sea, um, because it was, <laughs> it is, it covers 580 square miles. Jeez. It's bloody massive. So, yeah, and it's got a, a very natural um, defense at the very mouth of it called the Uraga, and it grew from there. So many of our cities are built on rivers, and there are several rivers in Edo, and they all lead out to Tokyo Bay, Edo Bay mm. even. And uh, that, that's kind of the reason why it did so well. So, yeah, that is kind of where I will leave uh, this uh, for now, and I'll pass you over to Patrick. Thank you very much. That's a good intro. It's interesting, yeah, because... What have we got? We've had, th this is now our third city uh, as a port, really, because we had New York, Alexandria, and now Tokyo. London. The other ones, yeah, but that's on a river, as in like on the, on the, um, on the oh, coastline. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've all had, I mean, they all have rivers next to them. It almost seems like for a big city to exist, it needs some sort of river, even if it it's built on, built on the coast. Um, that yeah. kind of perfect point at the river estuary is like ideal for city building, because it means you can get you know, shipments and goods and stuff flowing in from across the seas and from across the land through the through the river. So yeah, strategically placed. And actually, I was just looking at a map of it. I wonder whether or not the reason it was not a real big deal up until then is because it very much faces just the Pacific Ocean. So there's nothing <laughs> yeah. really that way. Whereas all on the other side of Japan faces Korea and China and everything that way. So any trade that was coming in from other countries will be coming in from the other side. So it's it's well, interesting that way that, that is really interesting the way you say that because um, the city is was known to be a much more militaristic one than... Uh, so Kyoto was known for its imperial court and Buddhist temples. And the other massive city is Osaka. <laughs> is Osaka. Mm, mm. And Osaka was a merchant plutocracy, basically. So like the merchants yeah. would go to Osaka. The, uh, the imperial courtiers would go to Kyoto, but then the actual hub of power and the military is in Tokyo. Edo. Edo. I will stop Edo. saying Tokyo. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't matter. It's still, it's still the same city. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so for this week's episode of Tokyo or Edo, however you want to put it, although we should say Edo because it's the right time, I will be exploring 17th century Edo, which is right at the beginning of a period which is kind of known as the Edo period or the Tokugawa period, which is this long, peaceful reign of the Tokugawa shogunate. Um, and if you, we've mentioned it a couple of times, but shogun, a shogun is kind of like a, it's a bit like a king or it's a bit like a military dictator that's really <laughs> in control of the country, whereas the emperor is the official head. It's sort of maybe half general, half prime minister is probably a good way of describing it. Yeah. And absolutely has way more power than a prime minister. Like, yeah, more yeah. than, like the only thing that the, the emperor has is basically, well, that he's a god. And which is a lot, but like <laughs> a lot. he is controlled entirely by the shogun, especially under yes. the Tokugawa shogunate. 
Yeah, absolutely. So at this time, uh, Edo is a city ruled by a shogun and is hugely influenced by the fact that it is this center of power. And during the 17th century, Edo was really growing into a major metropolis because it is this focal point, as you said. Although it's military, it is still the, the focus of all political spheres in Japan because it's where the shogun is, it's where all the power is derived. And actually a huge part of the Edo period is this kind of consolidation of power towards the center. So before now, obviously this comes out of the Sengoku period, which is huge civil war and where power was shared between various warlords throughout the land. There were dozens of, you know, smaller warlords, some larger ones who hold huge swaths, but Japan was very divided. And so the Edo period is really known for kind of consolidating this power. And it's probably kind of a reaction to the years that it came before, you know, a divided country will descend into war far more regularly than one country all united under a single banner. That's very true. I hadn't really thought of it like that. And I suppose yeah. it also points to um, the weakness of the emperor. Yes. And yeah, probably yeah. a succession of weak emperors that led to a sort of decentralization of power. Mm. I mm. don't know. It's interesting maybe. that the way they treat their kind of divine sovereign in the way that most European countries don't. We've always treated our kings to be the most important person. And although they do consider the emperor the most important person, their power to control their people is very limited. And so many, you know, it's almost a, a case where the emperor is almost vaguely innocent or above the the concerns of the mortals beneath <laughs> him. And so yeah. therefore, you know, ruling the country and control needs to be in the hands of a shogun. A mortal. So that they, yeah, a mortal. So that the, the divine emperor can just sit around and chill out with his. Because he's also got his like noble court, which are also kind of above the shogun, but in this really like zero power kind of way they're kind of just there for for show and it'd yeah. be a very bizarre existence because you're kind of the highest of the high with zero power and you just sit around and it's probably quite a very nice life but like a like of absolute wealth and opulence yeah but at the same time it probably would feel like you're sort of in limbo because you can't yeah. you're like a ghost like you can't, you can't you're do any powerful but you're yeah you can't do anything with it yeah. It's like yeah, yeah, it's a funny one. It's like having all the money in the world, but it's all in the wrong currency. It's like a dead currency which no one wants. Ooh, I like that metaphor. That's quite cool. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so during the 17th century, it is growing and growing and growing. And actually, uh, by the end of the century, it had become a city to rival cities such as London, Paris, and Beijing. And some historians uh, argue or, or suspect that around about 1720, uh, the population had grown to about a million, and it was the largest city in the world which is interesting. It's now, really? I think we've now, they, they, all the cities we're doing because Baghdad was the largest city in the world when I was I was going to say. It. I'm now exploring it. I mean, 1720, a bit later than when I'm looking at, I'm looking at the 17th century, which again, 17th century is the 1600s because of stupid, weird historians. Uh. Count, I mean, technically count correctly, but it's really confusing. Um, but yeah, it, it was growing and growing and growing and would go on to become the largest city in the world. Well, you know why? That I mean, Baghdad had been cauterized by uh by the mongols yeah, by that point so there absolutely like 200,000 living there <laughs> compared yeah, to the yeah, million yeah. back in the day um so yeah as i said yeah it is the seat of the tokugawa shogunate um and while as will said kyoto was still kind of the capital of the country but because it was the seat of the emperor but the de facto capital was edo at this time because it was where the shogun was 
and the city had a really interesting dynamic to it. During this time in Japanese history, there was a really rigid sense of class structure um, that was kind of broken down into four main classes. So at the top, and the emperor and his courtiers are kind of above these classes. It's, <laughs> this is more of a description for the, the general populace. But uh, at the top of the classes are, of course, the samurai, who are the ancient, noble, kind of like noble warriors, a bit like knights in uh, European medieval times. These are high-born individuals who have, in previous years, have been these mighty noble warriors who would go around, you know, righting wrongs or just butchering each other for, for land and power. But yeah. what's interesting, actually, at this time, because we're moving into a much more peaceful era for Japan, a lot of the samurai had kind of not quite retired their swords because they still carried them around, but they kind of had evolved their role into administrators and bureaucrats because they were no longer needed to command armies or fight in battles. They were the ones who lived in cities and particularly the ones who lived in Edo had really evolved into kind of just this administrative class of people who were completely kind of independent of all the other classes but would rule over them they're kind of put um behind the desks <laughs> just imagine it's kind of like um promoting uh yeah yeah your best soldiers and then put them so high up that they end up behind a desk well it's kind of i wonder if that's the kind of dream for any uh warrior at some point you can hang up your sword and take a cushy job where you just get paid loads of money just to administrate things I think it would depend on the bloodlust of the... Because, you know, I imagine True. if you've been bred in that way for, you know, generation after generation, I'm sure a lot of them miss, you know, cutting the throats of people. I mean, there will, still be, there will still be samurai who uh, are more adherent to their warrior kind of uh, origins. Um, and they would still... But they wouldn't be really residing in the city. Or if they were, they would be kind of a close honour guard to the, the, to the shogun. So they would feel to have some sort of more combative role but it's sure. just because you know these are more they're, they're 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 kind of noble class within japan so the some of them who may have been samurai they were like well we don't actually want to be fighters although we'll learn all the techniques and we'll carry a sword i'd much prefer just to sit around and administer and make money that way yeah fair enough i mean <laughs> that makes sense i yeah. think after that long that centuries of butchery you then want to sit yeah. down and go can we just not <laughs> yeah, just let's just chill out for a bit. <laughs> yeah. So underneath the samurai, the the second class, really interestingly, actually were the farmers and fishermen, which is a very weird and very strange really? for me. And this is where it kind of really splits itself from European class structures. So in, it is kind of based on uh, confunction ideals, which consider farmers more important than any other type of worker because they provide food which all of the other classes depend wow. on. So the farmers God, and fishermen so are it? more important uh, than any other type of worker in the country. And so not, not quite as important as the samurai. You know, they are feeding the populace, so they're considered almost like idealistically m more important. Sure. That's really interesting. I, I've literally never thought of that before. But yeah, of course, that is so different. I've, you know farmers are one up from sort of like back in the feudal system of you know like peasants you know yeah yeah in, in our, absolutely yeah i mean we have now but i mean other than samurai everyone else below them is a kind of peasant class so they're sure, not you know sure, 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 it's sure. not like the farmers and fishermen are incredibly wealthy men but they are considered Respected. to be more important yeah there's more of a respect there 
Um, although, to be honest, and although there is a respect there, the farmers are still uh, burdened by really heavy taxes. And in fact, they weren't even allowed to eat the crops that they grew. They were they had to hand them over to their daimyo, which is the Japanese version of a lord. And then the daimyo can choose to give it back to them as an act of charity. So, <laughs> oh, shit. Fucking hell. You know, you know, huge respect, a lot of respect, but I'm still... St- taking all your or everything I'm you've grown fuck and you maybe you'll give it back to you yeah, <laughs> yeah 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 the 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 respect they give is that they would occasionally give back the food that they stole off them so God. you know not, yeah, okay. not quite the best um no. and then the bottom two classes are the artisans and at the very bottom the merchants which is a again a really weird thing in european you would imagine merchants and artisans to be above farmers and fishermen but they really weren't considered as important. Artisans uh, were considered... They still make things, you know, they're still honourable people, but they aren't producing food, so they're not quite as important as farmers, whereas merchants were at the bottom of the rung because they don't really add anything to they society. They don't add... Yeah, so that yeah. because they don't produce and they don't defend, there's nothing... There's no, they don't, they're sort of surplus to requirements. Yeah. That's really interesting. It's really, really weird when you think about modern day, I mean, and European ideals of capitalism, where we value the merchants the most. Like, yeah. maybe not like, we wouldn't say we do, but the richest people in the world nowadays and throughout entire Western capitalization, it's the merchants. It's the people who own the factories. It's the people who, you know, own the railway companies. It's not the builders or the people who actually do something with their hands. No. It is these, it is these owners. the dealers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, and this is this isn't a capitalist society. This is a deeply feudal society. So, the class system isn't based on economics or anything like that. It's purely what the people believe the classes should be. And if they sure. adhere to these kind of confunction ideals, the merchants are are kind of the lowest rung because they're really not considered beneficial to society at all. Which is so strange. Yeah, that is really strange. Yeah. Really strange. Um, and the uh, artisans and the merchants during this period are also kind of developing into kind of one class as well that was good, that would go on to be known as the chonin. Uh, it's kind of this grouping of perhaps more up and coming artisans and merchants. It's this is the time period which, over the course of the next few hundred years of the Edo period, Japan is becoming a bit more of a modern country, less feudal. Um, but at this time that I'm focusing on, they are still kind of separate classes. Okay. And actually, I, I did say a slight lie because there is actually one class lower than these four classes. Those are the four kind of established classes, but there was a kind of quote-unquote class beneath them that were the lowest of the low, the kind of real outcast <laughs> um, of uh, of society. These were people who were either ignored or openly discriminated against. And this is the known... Tories. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. We had to cut that out, won't we? I'm leaving it in. Um, <laughs> no, these people in Japan were known as the Burakumin, and they were considered kind of unclean. It's kind of a similar to sort of uh, Indian untouchables. You're laughing because we're now referring to them as Tories. Um, but no, these people uh, in the kind of confunction ideals would be considered unclean because they had unclean jobs in society. So undertakers, butchers, executioners, tanners, bathroom attendants or as low as just simple beggars 
in the okay. street. So it's this kind of underclass that aren't really considered to be part of society, but are still needed for society to function. I mean, you still need a butcher, you still need an executioner, you still need an undertaker. Yeah. But they are really discriminated against, and it's almost written into the culture that people should look down on these people. In okay. fact, they're kind of considered non-human. A few of the terms used for them roughly translate as non-human. Really? It's kind Shit. of a really okay. cruel sense. You know, it's not quite... Yeah, I mean, other places of the world uh, have a similar thing where they have slaves, and slavery isn't really a thing here, but they are treated really poorly. There's so little respect. Huge parts of Japanese culture is all about... Uh, respect and honor and these people have none of it they're just considered the lowest of the low yeah okay fair enough however for this week's walkthrough uh we will be walking through the streets of 17th century edo with a member of the highest class the samurai so we ah. will be walking through with a samurai by the name of katakura noboyoshi great name yeah i have to admit i find that uh don't you think, uh, like, when we're trying to pronounce all these names, I actually think that Japanese names, for, for whatever reason, I find easier than pronouncing, say, Middle Eastern names. I don't know well, why, this rolls off the tongue really well. It's less, uh, it includes less ways of speaking that are, are like sounds that we can't pronounce. So lots of Arabic languages and African languages include sounds and... Uh, phonemes or I can't remember what it's called but sounds that we can't pronounce like clicks uh, and rolling uh, okay. the R's and that sort of thing whereas Japanese really does have a much more uh, simple's the wrong word but it's it, the way their language work is it is all kind of broken up into simple sounds so it is all katakura noboyoshi you know it's it's quite short sounding small you can, vowels you can navigate together. it quite easily yeah, yeah yeah so some of them can be i mean uh tokugawa ieyasu is quite a one to get used to it is but compared to some of the names i was trying to figure out during the baghdad episode yeah yeah these are these are no. a bit easier but there's a there's a power in these names i mean i think there's they're really impressive, they're especially the longer ones. And if you can say them with, you know, emphasis, I mean, Tokugawa <laughs> Ieyasu, Katakura Nobuyoshi, uh, Oda, Nobunaga. Oda Nobunaga. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, there's a, there's a real power, which I always think, you know, English history, you know, Alfred, Athelstan, Alfred, you know, they, they're rubbish. <laughs> they just sound useless. <laughs> Yeah, they don't, they sound like the nerds in the schoolroom, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's Ethelbert. He's come to yeah. like destroy the Mercians. And they also have Oda all... Nobunaga's come to destroy the world. You know. Yeah. Like... Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> They're the bullies, or like the guys who are going to succeed anyway. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, so weird. So so many similarities between British and uh, Japanese culture, and yet they just bossed it on the names, they and did. we were useless. Sorry. Let's do the walkthrough. So we're with Katagura Nobuyoshi, who is a young samurai who has come to the city as part of a guard to his daimyo. So he's not uh, a city-dwelling samurai, and actually he'd be very uh, not used to the kind of splendors of the city. He's arrived as part of the formal guard for his lord from the uh, village and region he's from. He is wearing uh, a samurai's kimono, 
uh, which is kind of the long robes that if you've seen any samurai 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 film or or anything like that you'll you'll recognize um the kind of styles they wear it would have been dark blue and probably made out of silk and what's actually interesting is that the samurai's clothing and his style was really important um to their status and the the way they were kind of considered by the the people around them but extravagant Mm. colors and patterns were kind of seen as immodest and like conceited like they weren't big fans of that so just like simple colors but really rich and like uh, expensive fabrics and really like smooth lines they were considered more uh, signs of eminence and uh, prestige you can I, I can understand that i've seen lots of shogun um, there's like portraits of all the shoguns and they're all dressed mm. lots of them are dressed in black silk that's it it's very yeah, yeah. simple but yeah, it has yeah, a yeah, power yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Not so much when they wear their armor. I mean, their armor is very over the top. But that's because they're, they're on display. Yeah, yeah they're on absolutely. Display to, when they're just yeah. moving through the city, and they have sometimes will wear slightly um, more formal attire. There is uh, a special type of kimono, which I can't remember the name of, but it's it goes on the top of everything they're wearing and has these really like exaggerated shoulders that makes them look really big and tough. And it's interesting if you see like uh, Johnny Japanese, Bravo. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> if you see Japanese art of uh, shoguns or daimyos, they're always depicted wearing these really big outfits. They look they they usually sat down, so they're really short and wide. But I guess it's <laughs> kind of show of power. Being wide is is impressive for them. Yeah, which is yeah, yeah. which is which is I guess I don't know if that's really reciprocated the rest of the world. I think where being wide is a is an impressive feat. Well. I guess it's not quite the same, but like um, being fat in the same time period, actually slightly later in in Britain or in the European world, it meant that you were rich because you had enough Mm. food to be fat. That's why you get all the gout people and, you know, it becomes like a sign of prestige if you have gout. It's like, fucking hell, really? But yeah, Yeah. if you were thin, there was something... It's poor, less of an basically. imposing thing, though. I think the 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 styles in Japan was very much to show you're a large, you're a larger than life character who can you know yeah. rule over you. You know, you're not this small meek character. So, mm. but um, Nobuyoshi is just dressed in this kind of slim uh, attire of a of a samurai moving through the city. His hair is pulled back in a classic top knot, for which uh, most samurai uh, wear during uh, when they're just moving around, and on his hip. Nobuyoshi wears two swords thrust through a belt wrapped around his waist, a long katana and a shorter tanto. And this is the real sign of his station and his class because during this period, only samurai are allowed to wear swords. I was going to ask. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah mm. it's, it, it, they're the only ones. And I wonder whether or not it is kind of in response to the bloody period that came before it because that was a time where everyone was armed and was ready to kill each other all this time whereas the tokugawa shoguns were probably like we should really limit it to (laughs) the samurai because i mean it's hard to take the swords away from the samurai but at least then the people aren't just ready to go to war on a moment's notice well what's interesting about that is they opened that pandora's box because the only reason that the tokugawa shogunate became that was because ieyasu armed the populace whereas lots of the other ones didn't so he armed loads of peasants, basically, and then basically got really into power and went, I'm going to take all your weapons back now. Thank you. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> the weapons, these are these are weapons owned by the state. Only the samurai are allowed to, to wear their weapons, which is, yeah, that, yeah. that is an interesting That's thing. That's irony, yeah. bit of irony. But yeah, so as Nobuyoshi moves through the streets, he really would have been awestruck by the scale of the city he's walking through. 
kind of what we consider in uh, modern times to be traditional Japanese architecture really took shape during the Edo period. So, you know, large wooden buildings with their characteristic curved roofs that kind of sweep out and extend far beyond the walls. This is where this kind of design was really taking hold. And what's interesting, actually, what I found really cool is that kind of very wide roof that goes far out and creates these kind of verandas all the way around the house is actually there yeah. for a reason. Part just for aesthetics, because it looks kind of cool, but also uh, in Japan during the summer, they have quite heavy rainfall and they needed a way to protect their walls from the you know horrific downpour that would come down because oh. also a lot of their walls and sliding doors would have paper to let in to let in light so you can't be dealing with you know lots of rain destroy you know it would just collapse or or rip through the the window can you imagine like we've got to sort this out we've got to find yeah, a way yeah. of stopping this problem i can't yeah, they, keep every, replacing the fucking every walls. summer they're like bloody hell we just got to and someone goes why don't we wind the roofs and they're like bingo there it is this guy but i love that <laughs> idea that you know in the ninja episode you talk about how daimyos would install creaking floors Oh yeah, yeah. Imagine them having the creaking floors, but still having the problem with the the rain taking out yeah. their, their <laughs> walls. It's like for fuck's sake, we can we we can stop the ninjas getting in, but we can't stop the fucking rain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's slightly more complicated. I mean, it feels like the jobs for ninjas are a lot easier when all your walls are made out of paper. <laughs> well, <So> anyways, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh. but what's also cool about this? So they did it to protect the walls, but also. It was so during the rainy season, they were still, the inhabitants of these homes were still able to open their windows, let in the fresh air, and then sit in this lovely meditative state, listening to the pitter-patter of rain outside, which I love because oh, I'm a huge lovely. fan of rain. I looked up, it's pluviophile, I think is the, the term for if you love rain, and I... <laughs> It's that feeling of being inside and hearing rain so close to you. Oh, I love that. And that was yeah. something they really loved. And this kind of like feel, there's a huge uh, connection to nature in all these Japanese cities and the Japanese architecture. You know, they don't, they, they used wood and they would commonly not even paint over the wood to really feel like they're connected to nature. And so there's all mm. this kind of wanting to be connected to this kind of spiritual plane that is the world around them. Which is really I love lovely. that. Yeah. 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 It's really nice. And although uh, Nobuyoshi would have, you know, he's from villages that would have similar buildings, them all being crammed together like this would still be really amazing. And it's not quite the cramped cities that we know of Europe. These cities were a bit more spaced out um, simply because of just the way they decided to design their cities. Yeah. I found that when I was reading it into uh, uh, the the way they built Tokyo, I mean Edo, is that they I, they designed it. I love that, because like, it was built properly in the sort of 1600s. Mm. There was enough sort of, um, there was enough development in construction and city building that they could actually structure it really well. And we'll put a, a map up on our Instagram for this week's episode. Um, and it's beautifully, it just looks beautiful in the maps that I found mm. in my yeah, research. Yeah. It is, it's, yeah, it's an amazing, and Japanese architecture and cities are just extraordinary to look at. I think they are, they are, they have a real beauty to them. Yeah, in fact, in my, in my episode, I will um, go through the layout of Edo as part of my story, so I'll, ah, I can go nice. into more detail there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so back to uh, Nobuyoshi. So he would be moving through the streets. He's actually looking for some small toy or trinket to, uh, to purchase and then possibly bring back to 
uh, some younger siblings back in the village where he's from. You know, he's gone off to the big city. He wants to bring home a gift, which is, I think, lovely. Ah, very nice. And on a slightly more run-down street, he comes across a small stall selling, you know, kind of small battered trinkets, nothing too eye-catching. But he wanders up, sees what they have. However, after stopping for a second or two, he quickly realises that the seller is a member of the Burakuman class, the lowest of the low. And this ah. is just not what he wants to deal with. The seller would actually have been part of a specific group within the Burakuman known as the Tekia, who were sort of wandering peddlers who travelled who traveled between villages and cities selling low-quality goods and actually often stolen goods. Really? Interesting. So after realising this, Nobuyoshi will have you know kind of been affronted and he actually spits on the ground and marches off which is quite insulting Lovely. but you know <laughs> a, a man of his station you know the highest of the highs even interacting with a with a techie would have been i mean what if someone had seen him it could have been a scandal yeah so, you know he storms off however as he does the eyes of the techie merchant does follow him as he walks away kind of with a oh. with a dark eye behind him um so Nobuyoshi continues moving through the moving through Edo, and he actually kind of moves out a bit, goes to the sort of outer areas of the city. Interestingly, Edo had been kind of designed in such a way. There's a fire that had happened in 1657 in Edo, and actually, to it was very destructive. And to kind of mitigate that, areas of the city and kind of rings were left open to either be fields or gardens and stuff as a kind of fire break. So you end up having this kind of outer city, which is where Nobuyoshi ends up in. And okay. once again, he runs into some slightly more scrupulous characters. Unscrupulous characters, I'm guessing. They weren't really nice people. Is, is it scrupulous? scrupulous? Oh yeah, maybe it is unscrupulous. I thought I think, scru- I think you just said they're really nice. nice. <laughs> maybe I did. Well, I'll look it up. Hang on, let me just check. <laughs> Scrupulous means a person who is careful, thorough, and extremely attentive to detail. <laughs> okay, so not that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unscrupulous, some unscrupulous. Unscrupulous characters. Some shady characters, maybe I'll put it that way. Ah, uh, okay. Um, so next to the walls of a, of a temple, none other, um, a group of men are playing dice and gambling. Now, in Japan at this time, and actually in Japan today, gambling is forbidden and illegal is it and oh, yeah know. yeah and these men particularly look fairly rough a number of them actually are kind of covered in these very colorful tattoos which isn't illegal at this time but is maybe a bit more frowned upon oh, yeah. i know where this is going yeah yeah, yeah. god i didn't by the way we don't know anything about each other's episodes so this is no no to <laughs> <listen>. <laughs> um yeah yeah you, i think you might have figured this out um and probably if people have looked at the, the name of the episode, they might have also figured this out oh, as well. Shit. Yeah, they will <laughs> yeah. know, won't they? Yeah. <laughs> um, so Nobuyoshi, obviously being an upstanding samurai, storms over to these men and breaks up their dice game and actually commands them to leave the city and never return because they are, I mean, they're gambling right outside a temple. And although Ugh. it is on the outskirts in a slightly rougher area, he can't be having this. And, you know, he's he's new to the city and is maybe taken aback by the, the depravity that he's seeing. And, yeah. of course, because he is a samurai and he's the only one of them armed, 
they're not going to back down. At, well, sorry, they're not going to back down. They're going <laughs> to back gonna away fuck immediately. Him up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're going to back away immediately because, and even if they don't, he is completely within his right to execute all of them on the spot because Shit, they are really? just so low. And I mean, the samurai can kind of do that to almost anyone. They really are this elite class that can kind of do what they want. Okay, good to know. Kind of Avoid samurai at all costs. Sea yeah. sword, run away. <laughs> yeah. And so these men move away. And these men, again, are part of the... What are they called? The Burakuman class, so the lowest of the last. Except they are part of a group that was kind of known as the Bakuto group, who were essentially, it kind of roughly translates to just gamblers and people who would, you know, be in villages and cities or even on highways and just would kind of swindle good folk out of their money through gambling, through either dice or cards. And they're really looked down on kind of almost from the Burakuman class. They're almost the lowest of the low because gambling oh is just such an affront to the people. Yeah. So uh, Nobuyoshi breaks them up and then marches back to the city. And once again, the Bakuto men share dark looks between them and watch the samurai as he marches back into the city. He's not making many friends, this guy. No, but he doesn't care. He's a samurai. He can do whatever he wants. He's not going to get well, a good TripAdvisor review for this city, is he? No, he's not. And actually, it's it's about to get a lot worse for him. Because as Nobuyoshi continues uh, his business throughout the city, he doesn't realize that this will be his last day in the city and actually his last day on Earth. Because come the morning, his body is found lying in a back alley covered in stab wounds. So although... What? Despite his high birth and presumably his elaborate training as a samurai, he has fallen prey to a group of outcasts at the bottom of the society. Because either it was the Tekia merchant and his mates who was insulted um, when he walked past, or the Bakuto gamblers who had their little ring or their little uh, setup ruined by him. And wow. it kind of could have been either, because these two groups were actually the precursors to one of the most infamous organized criminals kind of criminal syndicates in the world because these groups are the precursors to the yakuza i knew that's where you were going (laughs) and that is what my episode is going to be about brilliant bring it on i'm looking forward to it so the yakuza are to put it bluntly are essentially the japanese mafia they're you know similar to italian mafia or british mobsters or (laughs) new york mafia you know, yeah. they are a group of, it's not a single group, but is the general term for organized gangsters in Japan. And they really emerge during this period, during the Edo period. And according to the Yakuza themselves, they're supposedly descendant from wandering bands of Ronin, who are samurai Ooh. without a master. But that's probably, a, you know, an exaggerated <laughs> tale of their of their origins. What's more likely is that they did descend from these two groups, the Tekia and the Bakuto. So these kind of groups who were part of the lowest class, the most disenfranchised, really the most oppressed class. And they, after a while, start to band together and form these criminal organisations. Possibly, in if you're being romantic, to fight against the oppressors. And if you're not, just to be criminals and to make money sure, and to, and to get make some money. power. Yeah, well, I guess so, if you're the lowest of the low, that you always want to go up somehow. So yeah. not that I'm trying to excuse them, but like and the only not way given, is up. 
yeah, you're not given any opportunity to go up through, uh, you know, appropriate and honourable means. The class system is rigid and upward yeah. mobility is really restrictive. There's almost none at all, especially during early Edo period. It, it gets better over time. But the Yakuza and or the, the Tekia and Bakuto are really stuck where they are. And so you kind of can't... I mean, I don't know. It's hard to put yourself in, in their shoes. It's medieval times and they are in a oppressive regime but it is also a peaceful regime so hard yeah, to really guess mm, yeah tricky one tricky yeah. one it's, i always find this when we do our episodes is that you shouldn't ever impose modern values on something that's happened historically because almost everything that happened before now was shit in terms of yeah. like if you it compared to the enlightened times not that we live in a perfect world by any means but no. um things were a shit ton worse even this, I mean, this wasn't that long ago. I mean, we've gone no. far, far, farther back than than this episode. But it's, yeah, it, yeah, it's mad. I always think it's the weirdest thing in the world when people uh, kind of fetishize the past and think, "Oh, how wonderful it was back then." It wasn't. It was brutal <laughs> and violent, and it everyone was, was dying yeah. from disease. And it was just—it's not a nice place to be. Uh, yeah. I mean, even if you go fifty years back, it's still a worse place than it is today. Um, in in Absolutely. some regards, you know, global <laughs> warming might say. put an end to that, but. Um, <laughs> so yeah so it, the yakuza started from these two groups and the they kind of like have a different kind of origin uh depending on which group they more were aligned to so the techia as i said were primarily merchants who uh worked with illicit stolen or shoddy goods um but later in the 17th century the techia began to organize themselves into tight-knit groups under the leadership of bosses and underbosses and this is where the kind of first ideas of an organized crime group began okay. and they as they grew in power they actually really benefited from fugitives from the higher classes so even you know merchants <laughs> merchants artisans possibly even a few farmers which would be shocking were um, not would farmers, join surely. yeah <laughs> would join the techie and add a bit of um prestige to them i mean maybe even some uh, i mean you know there must be some truth in the idea that they came from ronin so there might have been some samurai who were maybe led astray or didn't really have a place in this new society and they might have joined up with these bands once they became a bit more organized but you know what it is in some ways because of the honor system if you are if you are seen to be dishonorable and it's quite easy to be it seems in this society <laughs> yeah you're shunned for life so then it's like well mm. okay i can either sit in my shame or i can go do something about it and i'm not just saying that doing something about it means go join a criminal syndicate and like start beating people up for money but like mm. you know what i mean i can kind of see like opportunists would definitely have joined their ranks like you know i can see that Absolutely. And they had, you know, they were considered a bit more of the kind of honourable side of these uh, criminal organisations. So uh, in a tradition that actually continues to this day, Tekia often served as security during Shinto festivals, Shinto being one of the major religions in mm. Japan, uh, in return for protection money, of course. But then again, if you really think about it, mm. I guess it's a bit more aggressive. But, you know, security nowadays... No, you couldn't say that's protection. No, no, no. They, no. If you don't pay them, they don't then break your stuff. <laughs> so it's it's a, it's a little different. So they're still criminals. Yeah. But as you said, you know, 
uh, practical people might have joined them and they were kind of rewarded because later on during the Edo period, between the years of 1735 and 1749, the Shogun government actually decided to try and calm gang wars between different groups of Tekia and reduce the amount of fraud and corruption throughout the city. So they decided to appoint a number of what was called Oyabuns, who were officially sanctioned bosses of these criminal organizations. So basically, they got stamps of <laughs> approval. And this is where they really start to rise above their station. So from the bottom of the bottom, they are suddenly allowed to have a last name and carry swords, which previously was uh, honor only given to samurai. Wow. So they are jumping up the class structure because they've become such a nuisance. And if they can prove themselves to be maybe a bit more trustworthy than their fellows, the government will suddenly go, yeah, you're an official criminal organization and you're able to kind of control this underworld for us. Oh, my God. So basically since then, the Yakuza have sort of had a uh, legitimacy within Japanese society. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Since it's, it's then. Where, it's where a lot of that legitimacy to this can you day imagine comes from. Whoever made that decision probably went, oh, it's fine. Like, what's the worst that can happen? No, we're talking like I mean, 300 years later. <laughs> I mean, I love the fact that in the in the um, part, the, the, the sources I was reading, they specifically say 1735 uh, to, yeah, 1735 to 1749. So the decision was made for a very specific amount of time. And then after <laughs> yeah. that, they were probably like, oh, okay, now it's kind of over now. But the, you know, the... The, the Pandora's box have been opened. They'd given legitimacy yeah. to these organizations and they're not going back. Once you've given them a sword, they're not, they know what happens if they give back their swords. So yeah. they remain as this oh. kind of growing power, which is really interesting. And actually a it lot is. of the traditions that come out uh, from the Tekia at this time continue to this day. So Oyaban, which literally means kind of foster parent, is still the style of a boss in uh, Yakuza gangs. And the their followers are known as Koban, which kind of means foster child. So they still right. have this kind of family dynamic, a bit like the Italian mafia. I was going to say, godfather yeah. and foster father are not Absolutely. that far apart. Yeah, yeah, they want to seem... I mean, that's how samurai work. They're normally dynastic families. That's how these things operate. And actually, a family structure is just common in almost everything in the world, you know, even... yeah. Yeah, even but I some feel companies like... kind of consider themselves like a, you know that's what a company says we're a family. Mm. That's what these uh, <laughs> these early yakuza gangs were thinking of themselves as. They saw themselves as a family that would protect each other and look out for each other. Yeah, I love how um, as we say, like it's like putting two twins in sorry twins in separate places and seeing how it grows. Just like that, the Italian mafia because they are rooted in uh, Roman Catholicism, they mm. choose the Godfather which is a position given to you by a priest as their Absolutely. legitimacy. Yeah. And it's and actually uh, the shogunate, who are sort of anointed by the, the god of Japan, who is the emperor, it's the same mm. bestowing of power. It's really interesting. Yeah. It's all these yeah. tools of I legitimacy. I love that. Is, that's and, fucking yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really it's cool. Re like, that kind of thing blows kind of my amazing. mind. Yeah. It really does. Yeah, yeah. So that's the kind of like the techie origins, but there was of course the slightly more uh, seedy other side of things, which are the Bakuto gangs, who would one day kind of grow into also Yakuza. Um, and the Bakuto, as I said, are you know really into their gambling and other kind of really much more illegal and illicit stuff. Okay. So they would obviously you know play dice games um, to swindle people out of their money. They had card games using traditional Japanese playing cards 
playing cards called Hanafuda, which are kind of smaller and more decorative than our Western standard 52-pack of cards. Sure. But they didn't quite stop there. Once they started to grow, they moved into quite an easy transition into loan sharking, which is kind of, I guess, within the same sort of thing. It's That's also kind of a gamble. You know, yeah. it's money lending. It's all to do Risk. with money. It's, it, you know, it, yeah. it's a lot more of a kind of seedier criminal uh, activity. And actually, a lot of the undesirable image of Yakuza nowadays originates from this uh, concept of the Bakuto. So the kind of less honourable, more crime-focused, seedy underbelly is from yeah. the kind of Bakuto origin of the Yakuza. Well, like you said about the Bakuto being at the bottom of society, when you first said that, it reminded me of how in Europe, um, usurers or loan sharks, for another word, were the very bottom of medieval mm. Europe. And that idea of loaning money and making interest on it was seen as the worst, most dishonorable thing you could do in the eyes of in Christendom. And the, these guys are doing exactly the same thing in Japan. I know I'm making lots of, <laughs> of, of links, but it's just... it's just No, no, right. I love it. I'm just thinking, again, very different from how we treat uh, these types of people nowadays. Because although loan sharks in that term are considered awful, banks lend you money and wait wait for interest to come yeah. back to you and we'll and take your house if you don't give them back to them. I mean... But they're pricks we, too. And no one likes Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. In a capitalist yeah. society, we elevate these people. The people that in Japanese medieval society and even European society, we consider to be the lowest of the low. In a capitalist society, and I'm trying not to sound too much like I'm standing on a soapbox when I'm saying this. In a capitalist <laughs> society, we for some reason elevated them to be our new uh, kings and princes and emperors who rule over us from on high or quite literally space if you're bezos but you know <laughs> it's just such a different dynamic that we have and it's you know who can say whether it's worse this way because it's it, it's difficult to compare a capitalist society to a feudal society because it's just so different and you know yeah this society definitely had its had its issues as we do so yeah but, I mean, um, you could murder someone in the street and get away with it it sounds like if you're as if you carry yeah. two swords <laughs> only if you were the only if you were a samurai, you know. Only if you were a noble. I Which, doubt they carried that, around sort I mean, of certificates saying they were samurai. Though. But isn't there that dumb rule? I mean, I think it might be just an urban legend, but that thing about uh, in the crossbow. Are you going to say about you, the crossbow? You, you can shoot a Welshman if he comes anywhere near you, or something like that. <laughs> no. So what it is? It comes from Shrewsbury. It's one of the um, towns on the border with Wales, and apparently there is a rule where if you shoot a Welshman bef- between the hours of twelve and one with a crossbow and kill him then it's fine. That's kind of the thing. And that's it a did really exist. weird rule. Yeah, Yeah, I know. I don't quite know why. But yeah, that's the, that's the myth. <laughs> and some English lord coming up with a dumb idea that he wants to retroactively explain why he shot a bunch of Welsh guy people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Um, so like the Tekia, a lot of the traditions that were um, very important to the Bakuto gangs were kind of followed through and became a really central part of the Yakuza gangs later on. So like I said, many of the Bakuto uh, men that our friend Nobuyoshi dealt with were heavily tattooed. And this is a huge part of Yakuza culture, really intricate and really kind of amazing, beautiful, colourful artwork covering almost their entire bodies. Um, and it would all be hand poked by sharpened bamboo or steel. So they, you know, even nowadays they don't use tattoo guns. They use this really like old fashioned tattooing method. Stick and poke. A bit, yeah. It's a bit creepy. I'm currently looking for a tattoo as as we speak. So learning all of this is and actually my weirdly my brother his tattoo he got done with bamboo splints. Yeah, no, my brother's got that. one done stick and poke, and it's horrible. Yeah. Like, apparently, yeah. it really hurt. 
I mean, obviously, any tattoos hurt. But yeah, that, when you said that in the uh, in the walkthrough, that's what gave it away for me because mm. I saw mm. there was a Vice article years ago which where they got like unfettered access to looking basically at lots of yakuza's topless, and they'd like done all these arty photos. And my God, the intricacy of yakuza tattoos! I mean, I know they've they're you know they've got a lot to answer for and not trying to defend them but my god whoever was the tattoo artist involved just i've not seen tattoos like it it is it's extraordinary i mean you know they've got a lot of practice because yakuza uh, members cover their entire bodies with them it's not just a few small tattoos as markings it's everything you know they really go ham on it and actually it's why supposedly modern day a lot of them wear very nice sleek long sleeve suits so that mm. because it doesn't go beyond their wrists or or above their neckline, so they can hide it if they want. Although if you see, you know, a kind of dodgy-looking uh, Japanese man who refuses to take his jacket off, maybe be a bit wary. Uh, giving advice uh, to anyone going to Tokyo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so another thing that actually the Bakuto gave to the Yakuza was the Yakuza name. So it actually has a really funny origin. It actually comes from a Japanese card game called Oichi Kabu, in oh, yeah. which the worst possible hand is an eight, a nine, and a three. No idea why. I don't understand the rules. Tried to work it out. Couldn't figure it out. Um, <laughs> but eight, nine, and three are called Ya, Ku, and Za. And that's where that comes from. So it becomes no Yakuza. Way. So the name kind of means good for nothing or worthless. So it's a kind of slur, but it's something that they now take they on. They owned it. Yeah, like they yeah, own it. I'm not, honestly, honestly, I'm not 100% sure if it is what they would call themselves. But it's certainly what everyone else called. And maybe modern day they've just taken on because they don't really care anymore. That's really interesting, actually, because you know the Nazis. Do you know I, what Nazi means? Gonna, it means it's, it's a slur, isn't it? It means hillbilly, basically. It's a, yeah. it's a slur. It's like um, an uneducated person from the countryside. That's literally yeah. what yeah, it yeah. translates they to. They didn't call them... themselves that. They no, were no, national no, no. socialists. They were... That's what yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. I always thought Nazi was some like shortening of national socialist because it's yeah. nah, like it kind of fits here. But no, it's <laughs> it, It's a slur and they wouldn't have called themselves it. And so and I wonder how yeah. much... I think nowadays they would call themselves Yakuza because it's it's an old-fashioned name so they're not as bothered about it but back then you know they might have wanted to be called no we're techia or we're bakuto or we're something else maybe yeah. even no we're actual we're ronin or samurai but everyone else would call them yakuza right i see that's interesting yeah and also um just like to compare them i've said this before in this podcast but i love how mafia means swagger yeah so the italian <laughs> mafia they swaggered down the street so instead of good for nothing it was swagger um and the other thing i was going to say is yeah the uh, Yakuza, as you say, has become such a, wor- a byword. Like it's become a global word. It's one of those words mm. which tra- it transcends um, language almost. Mm. And the first time I heard it was playing Tekken on PlayStation One. Did you ever play Tekken? <laughs> I it have. Was like yeah, a, yeah, a fight yeah. game. Yeah. So one of the characters on that was called Yakuza, and I was like, oh, I really liked him. So I used to play him oh, really? all the time. And I had no idea that that meant like a Japanese mafioso. But yeah, yeah, Yakuza was like a, a really big I'm trying to think there's a character called Mafia in something, but that's probably a bit too obvious. But I guess to Western ears, you would it just, just say Yakuza. It sounds like a cool thing. word. Yeah. It does sound cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. we're constantly seeing that. For instance, um, uh, in the Ninja episode, I didn't cover him, but the, the most famous ninja is Hattori Hanzo. Maybe I did cover oh, yeah. him. I can't remember. Oh! But um, like he's Kill Bill. Hans- 
like like in Kill Bill, whose his name is uh, Hitori Hanzo, but Hanzo is constantly used as a name for a ninja. I think it is in Overwatch. The character is called Hanzo. Oh, so you it? know, okay. if you're from Japan, you might know these people from history. But because so much of culture, global culture, is very Westernized, they'll just take whatever. I mean, to be honest, also looking up information about Yakuza is really difficult because there are a series of games called Yakuza. Which just popped yeah. up every time you search for them, which I is think really I've annoying. Played, I think I've played one or two of them actually. Back I in haven't, the day. but um, I mean, it's weird to call them that. And then, I mean, I guess there's there is a mafia. There's a game called Mafia as well. Yep. And played that too. Sounds some... good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny. So they do have everything. What if there's a? Surely there's a game called Triad. I'm sure there's a. Game surely, called Triad. surely, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but so what's quite interesting is actually. Modern Yakuza, although they have diversified and they are involved in all sorts of different criminal enterprises nowadays, a lot of them will still consider themselves and identify as part of either Tekia or Bakuto. So a group that's more into protection rackets or maybe stuff that could be considered a bit more honourable would be they would consider them as Tekia, whereas any Yakuza gang that was into you know, setting up gambling houses, possibly more seedy stuff like prostitution or even worse stuff like human trafficking, might be considered more Bakuto. Bakuto, okay. So th- those terms kind of still uh, echo through time, which I think is really interesting. So their origins really play a huge role in what they're like today. Yeah, that is interesting. Very interesting. Mm. And actually, a lot of the medieval kind of traditions and rituals of the Yakuza uh, are still really prevalent today. So, for instance, new members traditionally take a blood oath of allegiance, which sounds like a bit more of a Bakuto thing, but to be honest, it could have been either of them. And it also sounds a bit of a samurai thing. And it's yeah. kind of just a medieval uh, ritual initiation. Or Assassin's Creed. <laughs> it does sound a bit Assassin's creed doesn't it? it they take like the finger, you know, that yeah, finger yeah, that yeah. they take out. Well, actually, it's interesting you say take the finger because there is another um, practice which the Yakuza still do. Uh, and this, I think, came more from the Bakuto side. But when a member had either um, broken one of the kind of codes of conduct or done something wrong or had betrayed his people and possibly even just run away during a fight, he would be punished by the remo- having his little finger removed from his his dominant hand, so his sword his sword hand. Oh, and so he can the re- grip the, the sword, is that the idea? That's the, yeah, that's the origin of it, is that in uh, when they were back using swords, less important now people use guns, and I think you can probably fire a gun with four fingers as well. You'd maybe want to take off the trigger finger if you wanted to do it nowadays, but it's, yeah. it's still the little finger. But back then, it wouldn't stop you from using a sword, but it would weaken your grip. And the reason they would do this is because if you have a weaker grip, you are going to be a worse sword fighter, which forces you to... De- depend on the men around you so it forces you to be loyal you could no longer kind of strike out on your own because you're you're going to get taken out you can't be this impressive fighter so you have to work as a team which is kind of it's brutal and bloody but that kind of is kind of nice element to that they're like forcing you to be a team player as opposed to a punishment to like belittle you or just cause you pain it's got a purpose beyond just punishment that is deep rooted in sort of Confucianism, though, because like um, you know how the way um, I'm not sure if you know this, I'm not sure if we've mentioned this already, but um, the way that rice paddy fields and the way that communities are set up in Japan, um, especially when we were in subsistence farming, the um, the community you can't be a, a solo rice paddy farmer. 
you can't do it. It's far too much work. So whole communities had to work for food for the community. Whereas mm. over in Europe, you were given a strip of land which you farmed and that was it. So there's that sort of... And then therefore, taking that over to this thing, if you had to rely yeah. on your others, it's exactly where it sort of brings them back to their society's like deep-seated origins, like one of their beliefs yeah, at the yeah. beginning. It's quite I think it's, yeah, a lot of Eastern cultures really have this idea that your life belongs to your family and your community. The set, the as opposed yeah. to, yeah, yeah, you are not lone wolves, um, which is a very different feeling that, that we have in the West where, you know, individuality is really heightened and, you know, you need to be your own really man. Is. Yeah, it's a huge part of our culture. And yet on the other side of the world, being part of a community is so important and you know yeah pushing out from that is seen as the worst of the worst and it's interesting that yeah, their punishment is to bring you back in it's not to outcast you it's to force you to be part of the community further and whenever you're dishon being dishonored you're dishonoring your family or your group whereas you don't really get the same thing in christendom in the same mm. time period you don't dishonor you, yeah you're you dishonor God. You don't dishonor the people around you. It's all just dishonoring God. It's still yeah. weirdly. I mean, you are part of a larger group of Christians, but it's not quite. It's not the same. You, no, you know, it's you're, not. It, it's it, it's interesting, and it and it does seem to just be really based on the the stories and the tales and the the mythology we tell ourselves. So in the West, we had Christianity, um, and even older stuff. It was more individualistic, whereas in the East they had Shinto and Confunction. And, you know these Buddhism, are very yeah. and Buddhism, yeah, yeah. These it's it's just interesting how these things develop. And I wonder, as you say, it's purely out of things that are definitely different about society, like our geography and the crops we needed. And yeah. you know, one, uh, whether or not it was just in Europe, we, you know, we our cultures developed in places where a person could live by himself, and therefore we built societies around that idea. Whereas in uh, the East, you couldn't do that; you needed to depend on people. Yeah. I think it's, that's what it was, fundamentally. I think I heard yeah. that on the Blind Boy podcast, which I'm always accidentally uh, <laughs> plugging. They don't yeah. sponsor us, but I do love it. It's so good. Anyway. It'd be cool if they did. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's. I mean, I love all that stuff, like finding it. The, the root cause for uh, cultural differences is really, because you can just keep going back and back and back and back and back and find all these things. Like, I love the idea that the reason the like, I don't know if I'll include this, but there's a great video uh, that CGP Cray does um, yeah. He's a YouTuber who does the explains why um, the like the bubonic plague essentially all the illnesses went one way across the Atlantic and not the other way. So when we went to the Americas, we destroyed their culture with our diseases, but we didn't catch any of their disease. And the reason is they didn't have cities, and the reason they didn't have cities is because they didn't have uh, animals that could be easily domesticated, and you need that in order to you know make enough food to support a city. Because the animals they have over there, they have uh, deer buffalo. that can, yeah, deer. buffalo that could charge down a fence, deer that could jump the fence. Llamas are maybe kind of a bit closer, but they didn't have pigs or sheep or or cows. goats, which are just eat or cows. They're really easy to to domesticate, and so it makes it a lot. It, it's almost it, we started in a different. Uh, like a like a different um a different, difficulty um, level. Like starting video game. Yeah, 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 yeah. Our starting point was easier, so we were able to develop cities. So and when you get when that, you spawn into Minecraft and you're looking yeah, for a yeah, place yeah, to yeah. set up your settlement, yeah, yeah. it really changes the society you build. And because of that, we built cities, which meant we got diseases because we were all crowned in together with each other, and it meant that we destroyed their civilizations with our diseases. 
Sure. It's fascinating, all this stuff. I don't it know. is. We might not yeah, include we, this because we're I, rambling I love, a bit. But No, but I love the tangents. The tangents are yeah, the best yeah. part of this. So to finish up on the Yakuza, so as I said, the Tekia maybe instilled this idea of honour within um, the Yakuza gangs. And like, you know, that short period of time where the Shoguns decided to validate these Yakuza gangs uh, and give them a bit of power, make them seem almost equal to samurai, that yeah. really remained, as you said, it remained part of their culture, the Yakuza culture throughout time. And in modern day, there are some... Uh, within Japan, and certainly some within Yakuza gangs, who really consider themselves more like Robin Hood-esque groups. Really? You know, they are they are much more honourable and chivalrous. In fact, they often actually refer to themselves as Ninkyo Dante, which literally means chivalrous organisation. So quite often they consider themselves to be almost maybe defenders of the downtrodden or a kind of counterbalance to a corrupt government. And there's a few examples I could give you, and you can decide, uh, and our listeners can decide how they feel about them. So immediately after the uh, earthquake in Kobe in 1995, the Yakuza group called Yamaguchi Gumi, who is nowadays, and I think then, the largest Yakuza gang uh, in Japan, while the government was really like, all, like in pieces all over the place, wasn't really doing a lot, this Yakuza gang put a huge amount of effort into sending food and supplies to the victims of this earthquake. They rallied and organized themselves and made huge amounts of positive good to these communities that were destroyed by this earthquake, which is good and a nice thing to do. Yeah, but at the same <laughs> time, just to give the yeah, other yeah. side of the coin, that's the best way to the way mafias work is that they rely on their communities, and this is the perfect excuse to um, rally, get people to rally to your cause, especially when the government aren't going for it. Now, listen, I'm a cynic, and also mm. I'm a law-abiding citizen, so I am not the best advocate for the yakuza. Patrick, on the yeah. other hand, is a, is a miscreant, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. convicted felon. He's spent <laughs> lots of time behind bars, as you can hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've got quite a rebel <laughs> soul, so <laughs> I'm quite liking this. But, you know, you know, I mean, you know, you say, you know, they want to protect the community, but that is, as we were saying, part of Eastern culture, this idea that you have a service to your community. And, yes, the reason they did it might have been nefarious, but it's... You know, the old adage, the ends justify the means. In this case, the means were the good thing. And so if the ends were, you know, bad, you know, if the, the reason they did it wasn't it was to gain power, but the means was a positive impact, then, you know, if you just keep doing nice hey, things look, for bad reasons, eventually they, you've just done a bunch of nice things. They've say okay, yeah, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, Patrick. Oh, yeah, 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 that's, that's, that's <laughs> another good adage. Um, and actually, to add to yourself, because when I wrote that down, I also thought I need to get one from the other side. Um, so in 2007, so really quite recently, uh, the mayor of Nagasaki, a man named Icho Ito, was shot and killed by a senior ranking member of the Suishin Kai, um, another Yakuza group, supposedly over a grudge that started when the Yakuza senior officer's car was damaged when he drove over a pothole, and <gasps> which he blamed on the mayor because that's part of public work. So that's where the feud began. Probably some other things happened in between. And then, oh and then this uh, Yakuza senior member shot the mayor. 
So it's holy, and shit. that's pretty. That that that's <laughs> that's that's a bad end and a bad means. So yeah, yeah. still okay. criminals at a yeah. at, at, at at heart. But it's I think they're a really interesting group to examine. And what I do really find interesting is the way they came about was after the one of the bloodiest times in Japanese history after the Sengoku period, and then due abs- during ostensibly a long period of peace. That's where these gangs uh, came out of. So it wasn't during the wars where, realistically, you don't really have criminals during civil war. You just have your enemy warriors. Anyone, yeah, that's any true. groups, they're not really criminals because they're all criminals to a certain extent. There is no overriding order that they are rebelling against. They're all at war with each other. You need so, some sort of stability in order to fester, for sure. Yeah, exactly. That. And so they came out of the peaceful times the peaceful but incredibly oppressive times uh, under the tokugawa shogunate so it's probably the lesser of two evils it's quite hard to tell on that isn't it would you rather live yeah. in a peacetime but with a thriving mafia or in a uh, non-peacetime with no mafia i don't know i feel like it's quite difficult i to th- be honest i think it's probably the f- i think as much damage as uh, the yakuza or any of these gangs could do it's nothing on the sengoku period i mean yeah, go true, back true, and listen true, to true, the ninja true. episode that was Awful. It was brutal. I think they, they lost millions of people. You know, war is worst. There's nothing worse than war, really. I mean, it's True. like when we did the Alexandria tsunami. That was pretty bad. Way smaller than any war we've dealt with. So That's true. Like when the Mongols have butchered Baghdad. Mongols coming in. War and pestilence and plagues. Yeah. Those, are, those are the big killers. And I guess now global warming. But I digress. So, yeah, I think the Yakuza are still bloody maniacs and criminals and have done huge amounts of damage but they have a very interesting origin story as possibly reacting to an oppressive regime which i think is something that you know no one is just evil and i don't think the yakuza are just evil and so it's it's good to know this kind of side of them which is still bloody and still awful but it's almost like evil begets evil you know they were cruelly treated and so they go forth and cruelly treat others which is i think where all you know cruel acts really come from it's you know it comes from people who were cruelly treated mm, yeah I, I see what you're saying i see it i know <laughs> i we're not here to debate the the morality of the yakuza so i'm not gonna i'm not gonna push no. back on that it's all good but yeah they were so they were is... in a tough position and they yeah. were probably driven into poverty because of their low status and People who are desperate do desperate things. And that yeah. I can understand. Yeah. So that is my episode, our first episode on Tokyo, or Edo, as we're both calling it, because neither, it makes more covering, sense. Yeah. neither of us are covering uh, a time period when it's called it's actually called Tokyo. Um, which I believe, surprisingly, I assumed Tokyo came from Tokugawa, but I think it just means Eastern capital. It does. It literally surprising. just means the Eastern capital. Yeah. Yeah. So that's weird. I totally thought it would be Tokugawa because it sounds similar. I just thought again, it was. It's just a. I thought it was just a. What do you call it? A um. What do you call it when they're the no when when the anagram. Uh, thank you. So I just thought it was just an anagram of Kyoto. I thought someone was. Which it is, uh, but I know, but like I just thought that was it. I thought they were just trying to be clever. <laughs> when would they ever do that? Who would name a city that would just be an anagram of another city? <laughs> I said no. Noldan or something as the counterpoint to London. <laughs> Noldan. I, th- okay. I think I did that right. Noldan? Is that right? That sounds there's right. There's no A. There's no A in London. Oh, I've. Oh yeah, and I've. I've it's not two. Landan. <laughs> I've also. I've also. I've also uh, uh, added two N's. 
Oh no, there is two ends. Yeah, <laughs> I can't spell. <laughs> but regardless, we're, we're getting off topic again. This has gone on for quite a while. So thank you very much uh, for listening to this first episode of the Tokyo uh, Duo episodes. Will, what are we talking about next week in our two-parter episode? Well, as always, for some reason, I always seem to uh, take it from where peace is a good thing to somewhere a little less nice for the city. Although for this, this <laughs> one, it's... It, I feel like it's more like a rough wooing than anything else. Like it's sort of a big wake up call to the modern world. So I'll be okay. taking us forward to the end of the Tokugawa shogunate. Um, so I seem to always be at the end of things. I, I don't know why. You, you always do. Sort of, you do the birth of the thing. And I always seem to kill it off at the end. But yeah, we what really happens have done is, that for some reason. Yeah, that has not been planned. But uh, mm. it's there's a rebirth coming as well. So it's quite an interesting period in the history. And uh, yeah, can't wait to tell you all about it next week. And um, just for those listeners who haven't already, please um, like, uh, share, subscribe, get everything, uh, any reviews that you want to put up, please. Uh, we'd love it so much to hear from you. And we're on Instagram at Cloak and Dagger Podcast, where you can DM us anytime with your questions. We've got quizzes up there. Um, we do three posts per week when we're doing episodes. And yeah, just, just get in touch. We're, we're always yeah. happy to, to chat. It's so great hearing from you. And uh, yeah, love to know, especially if we, even if we got stuff wrong, you can let us know. <laughs> yeah, and we love that we, especially. We, we probably won't retract it. I don't think we've ever done that. But as we said no. at the very beginning of the series, don't trust us to be 100% correct. We just like, we're, we're, we're still kind of amateur historians. So, And on that shaky note, we'll see you in yeah. the next one. <laughs> see you next week. Bye.